to another episode of the Spiel with Stewie. Today is going to be a full-on education process. I'm going to be tackling myths, stereotypes, and you know, just the actual facts about black being black in America, the black community. Um, and this isn't necessarily like a black people only episode you know not to say that if you aren't black then you know you shouldn't listen to this episode because I feel like that is definitely not the truth um but yeah so this is probably gonna be a two-part series it actually is gonna be a two-part um episode special I'm gonna start small kind of small build up and this is what we're gonna talk about you know the mystic education of black America on the spiel with Stewie let's get it so before I get like really in depth, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say it now. Um, I am going to be going back and forth between slavery, post Civil War era, the 20th century, and now. You know some of these things that you know we hear in our uh, predominantly white-led media is that black people's problems ended with the end of the civil rights movement. So you know all these incidents and of discrimination of misunderstandings all these unfortunate events you know it's just accidents you know or they could be justified in a way and i'm just you know our problems did not end with the end of the civil rights movement and in fact i feel like we're living in a modern civil rights uh movement today so for um our first myth i guess i'll call it is that um black people are lazy you know this harsh stigma about black people lazy sit around collect welfare checks and have no desire for economic or social mobility and this is prevalent um during the civil war when you know there would be uh political cartoons for pro-slavery groups you know they depicted slaves as those who were relying on their masters had good lives their masters provided um them with you know the housing labor and gave them honors um Excuse not my housing and labor, housing, clothes, food, and, you know, honest labor, good days of work. And, you know, these images depicted slaves praising their masters with grateful words. You know, they would gather around in groups and party and dance, or they were just bumbling fools, so, you know, they wouldn't be okay without their masters. And, um, all of this is dehumanizing, obviously, you know. Yes, technically, you know, food and uh, housing were provided, but like obviously no it wasn't the best um you know clothes didn't have to fit shoes were not always provided field slaves worked daylight hours and with the convention of cotton gin things got worse quotas were put on slaves um since more cotton had to be produced then you had overseers and drivers so there was really no peace for slaves even if there might be a day or two when they didn't work and, you know, after the Civil War, the Freedmen Bureau, Freedmen's Bureau, excuse me, was passed by Congress after it had been vetoed twice by President Andrew Johnson. And you can read this on the History Channel's website. You know, this legislature established um, government assistance for housing, medical aid, and um, schooling freed slaves and poor white people in the post-war South. And it had re- uh, received a lot of criticism for a variety of Democratic newspapers at the time, you know, because taxes would be funding it. And, you know, these ind- individuals, you know, who pretty much people believed like they didn't deserve it because they didn't work for it. So it was just like the taxes of the hardworking class were giving free stuff to these people who technically didn't work or didn't do anything as if, you know, they weren't just slaves. 
Um, and pretty much that whole view about um, providing assistance for newly freed slaves and, uh, and white people at the time is very similar to currently how Republicans view welfare and food stamps. And even though these are all things that are utilized by poor white people as well. And the reality is the um, program was beneficial in a sense, but it didn't last long. It was severely underfunded. Um, free slaves were pressured into sharecropping and uh, tenant farming. And, you know, this forced them into a lifestyle that was only slightly better than before. And you, then generations ended up being stuck in situations of borrowing farming essentials from a landowner who probably was the old slave owner. And then they would only receive partial profit for the work they did. And then furthermore, you know, you have freed slaves and their descendants doing started doing well for themselves. You know, they started having their own businesses. But then this led to the stereotype about black people eating fried chicken and watermelon. This is very vivid. Um, in older political cartoons, black people were seen as idle. They were drawn to be drinking watermelon all day. In newspapers, um, there'd be cartoony big look black people that were used to discredit their businesses. And on the um, Netflix show Ugly Delicious with David Chang, he discusses the um, historical impact of black people and fried chicken with a, the, with a University of Maryland professor. Her name is, I believe, it's pronounced Psyche Williams Forson. And she explains in the show the imagery of black people and fried chicken and how that image has always kind of been a part of um, American pop culture. And I kind of think the real uh, thing people um, nowadays don't realize is the fact that like newspapers and magazines was the social media of the time. You know, people bought them, they shared them, they shared about the stories and the articles that were featured. Um, you know, this was the way people got information. And then starting in the 20th century, minstrel shows starred white people in blackface and they would bumble and groan and eat, eat chicken and watermelon as a part of their character. So this was established in American culture, you know, no one really challenged it because it was a stereotype that made people comfortable. So, you know, you could be working your butt off, but you were so seen as lazy, you know, you worked as a stereotype to like prove, to prove the stereotype wasn't true. And I feel like, you know, one of the most relatable and like misinterpreted stories about a happy-go-lucky character is the sort of Aunt, um, Jemima, Aunt Jemima, Jemima, uh, you know what I'm talking about from the pancake mix. And, you know, the company was not started by a black woman. And the original um, Aunt Jemima actress, Nancy Green, she was a freed slave who was working on a house servant and acted as the character at the Chicago World Expo. Um, her role was to make the pancakes and told fantastical tales of the nostalgic Old South. And the tactic was successful as marketing the Aunt Jemima mix. You know, it was something that you were sold to provide a family with quality breakfast, as if you had your own mammy at home. And Miss Green, she worked the road until her death. Then later on in 1933, Anna Robinson took the job as a way to provide for her children, and she moved them out the South. And, you know, on the Aunt Jemima website, her story is glorified in kind of this, like, white savior way. You know, they took this woman, gave her a job, gave her the American success story. And, you know, later down the road, Robinson was able to buy a big house. And, you know, she rented rooms. But I feel like there were some psychological effects. Name um, 
Aunt Jemima is from a minstrel show, and it, it is the um the character is depicted as a mammy character that was compassionate, bubbly, and happy to provide for the children and the family that she worked for. And you know, both women were iconic in the role, but the image hasn't really changed much. And I think it's kind of difficult in a way to like depict yourself as a stereotype because you're kind of just playing in this world that people expect you to play. Um, and for example, in the 2001 film Baby Boy, it stars um, Tyrese Gibson and his main character is Jody. And Jody is a 20 year old who is kind of aimless, you know, he's already the father of two children and is in between, you know, dedicating himself to actually being an adult and a father and staying at home with his mom and relaxing um and i think movies kind of set in the ghetto you know i feel like they are important but i also think sometimes a stereotype can also um can actually just be all anyone sees especially in the um early 2000 movies with roles with like the dramatic black friend the gangster who's either the enemy of the movie or the boyfriend or like the seductive mistress and, you know, these characters have fun traits that make them likable with the audience, but there's also, like, some underlying damage done by seeing these characters in the movies. You know, it raises the question as, why don't we get better? Why don't we have honorable jobs? Um, why are we so obsessed with sex to the point of, you know, debilitating our own opportunities? Then you end up getting caught in baby mama drama and all of this stuff like that. You know, obviously, you know, this isn't, the only characteristics of black people like people have had these problems in their life but like this isn't like what makes us so you know we start our own businesses we try to form some representation in media which is why these characters are so valuable and you know work to constantly prove um against the stereotype that we're not lazy individuals but every time we try to prove ourselves the script gets changed and now um over the last decades, obviously, changing subjects, um, black political and activist groups have combated, you know, this miseducation of black people in empowering ways to um, change the narrative of black people's roles in America and our ancestors. And this is a good thing, you know, the Black Panthers gave back to their local communities, you know, the Nation of Islam changed how black people saw themselves with religion and their relationships with each other and God. And I'll kind of get into detail about um, at least the Black Panthers later on. But like overall, there has been like this counter force to educate black people correctly and our role in society. Um, however, there is one ideology that I kind of want to clarify and address because it just bothers me so much. And that is the fact that um, slaves or us as black people are the descendants of African kings and queens. Um, and pretty much just hear me out because obviously, I mean, this isn't me hating because that statement is true to a point. Obviously, um, I just feel like when it comes to things like that, it's the over glorification of our African ancestors because you know it kind of counters what we learn in the school systems you know in our school systems black history simply starts with slavery or you know possibly about the few indentured servants in colonial America and like obviously that's not true like that's not where we start black people or you know especially just like Africans you know we have this part in worldwide culture it's just but silence the other hand though is that um they're just faults, you know, like Africans had the same faults as we do as five people today. And I think it's just harder to think about Africa's actual contribution to slavery 
for us as African diasporic people. So as a result, you know, we have this kind of disassociation with African truly because we're just picking out the good bits. And I've seen, you know, plenty of times um, on those extremist woke accounts on Instagram that you see about us being kings and queens um, and things like that. So historically, there were plenty of kingdoms in Africa. Egypt is usually heavy, no, heavily noted. Um, the Roman Empire influenced Northern Africa with trade. The spread of there was the spread of Christianity and Islam, and it was estimated that before um, Africa was colonized by Europe, that there are about ten thousand like city states or kingdoms. Which means that you know there is this abundance of culture and language. And there are plenty of leaders, you know, there were empires that held their own social structures that had their leaders, kings and queens, political leaders, soldiers, citizens, you know, the citizens probably were jobs, they were workers, metal workers, miners, um, farmers, things like that. So yes, there were plenty of African rulers um, in Africa at the time, but you need people to rule, obviously. So I've, um, it wasn't everybody was like walking around as a king, you know, not everyone was their own sovereign nation with the population of themselves, of one. And I think another concept is that, um, slavery isn't new, like historically, the, what happened to us as black people in the United, in the Americas, I should say, is different, but slavery as a whole wasn't new. In the Bible, you know, with the nation of Islam and Israel, they were slaves you know, there were slaves in Roman society, there were slaves in these pre-colonial African societies. Um, but however, the thing that is changed is the fact that, you know, these slaves, you know, kind of had their own rights, you know, they were either bound in servitude because of a debt or they had to serve in the military. But the thing is, um, slavery wasn't like this horrendous thing that Chateau slavery was in the Americas, you know. Slaves were not bred like animals. They weren't freely sold like community, com like commodities. Um, so you weren't, there weren't this long, continuous generations of slaves. Um, at the time, in Africa and other societies, slaves had rights that prevented circumstances of being sold and how they were treated by their masters. And, you know, of course, I'm not saying that, you know, everything was great and peaceful as a slave at the time, but, like, our modern idea of slavery with chateau slavery was not, like, a conceivable or understandable idea at the time. And, you know, all Africans, you know, brought to the Americas were savagely kidnapped by Europeans. Some were sold into slavery by African tribes and kingdoms, you know, if they were criminals, they were prisoners of wars and things like that. But then again, you know, at the time, they were not thinking how different slavery would have been wherever they were going. So, um, in her book, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, or Disorder, I can't remember, either one, um, Dr. Joy DeGroy explained her experience when she had um, visited different tribes and countries in Africa. So, during her time, there was a translator, and sometimes when they would meet a group of people, they would have to translate um, the term African-American. So, you know, which this would be like a full in-depth ex explanation before, you know, they can continue on. It would talk about, um, they would have to explain Chateau slavery, post-Civil War, the um, 1900s and the um, social movement and how things are now. Because 
it's not really educated as much as well if you go into rural areas and you know the thing is like i said slavery was a part of society and it had its own beliefs and how it went along you know it was kind of a different social construct so yes you know in africa there were normal people who saw someone of a different status and accepted it and you know this isn't me saying that kings and queens and are not important to be taught to black people especially children but I feel like it's more important to learn about Africa as the continent, you know, as a diverse culture with its social structures, social structures and its um, political history and how it is right now. Digging deeper, um, I'm going to address a, a religious topic for this um, two part episode, and that is white Jesus, white Jesus. It has been debated um about black people worshiping a white god you know it's shown in pop culture like you know uncle ruckus and the boondocks and christianity has um received its fair share of criticism from the black community with the role of the church and christ in their lives um and i think the most like kind of annoying like misconception from you know those extremist woke accounts is that christianity is the white man's religion and this has been repeated for years you know um for centuries really you know you'd have white angels depicted in black churches and that was kind of like one of the things for muhammad ali the boxer that kind of like turned him off about christianity and i'm sure he had other reasons for converting to islam um malcolm x was highly um um what would be the word highly criticized white people in general before he had um gone on his religious pilgrimage to mecca and i can talk about that another time but basically the basis you know for this mindset of why we call christianity christianity the white man's religion is the fact that um white slave owners forced african slaves and their descendants into christianity you know denied them the right to express their um culture and religion from the motherland so in a way it's technically true um you know significant cultural aspects from their lives in africa were stripped from slaves in america you know similar to the whitewashing of indigenous communities that were here when the colonizers came however my point is just the fact that like christianity has been in africa for a long time before the transatlantic trade and also jesus isn't white you know, with the latter, whether you believe in Jesus or not, historically, the events um, in the Bible were take, took place in the Middle East. And um, there were evangelistic missions to Africa, the Mediterranean, and Asia. And in fact, the thing is, the Abrahamic um, religions mainly are based were based in the Middle East. So this would be Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Which means that, you know, how, if there was a Jesus, you know, he was not a white dude with blonde hair and blue eyes to say the least in his earthly form he probably had dark brown hair um brown eyes and brown skin and to me it was like for me it's easily easy for me to understand and accept this because like growing up like in my old bible or in my grandma's old bible there would be a map and on the map you would see jerusalem and jerusalem is not in egypt i mean not egypt obviously <clears throat> not in europe so like it's kind of basic geography to me to realize that jesus would not be white i look at the map and i look and see that jerusalem um is not in europe and you know furthermore whether you like i said you believe in christianity or not here's how the story goes after jesus ascends to heaven the apostles and the other followers are tasked with spreading um the gospel 
and Jesus' lives to others. So this led to Christianity being spread. Um, Jerusalem is a, was a cultural hub in the Roman Empire where, you know, you had people from all over the empire coming together. So the Israelites and the like, you know, they would encounter those from Africa, you know, North Africa. And there's a tale in the Bible where the Apostle Philip encounters an Ethiopian eunuch and later on baptizes him. And this account, um, some people believe, is what first started um, or what first led to North African churches since the eunuch was a actually a high-level um, soldier who served the queen. So, I mean, and even if you don't believe that, like, early churches, African churches, and early Christians were severely persecuted by Roman rule with plenty of martyrs. During this time, Christianity also spread to the Mediterranean, notably in also Rome, and this is how Christianity spread through Europe. So, there are a lot of theories of how um, Jesus was ended up being whitewashed in his depiction, and some of them relate to like the corruption of the early Roman Catholic Church. And one is that a pope had ordered a painting of Christ to be done in the likeness of his son. And, or some type of variation of that and um it is common for people to envision christ or any type of deity in the likeness of the region um if you look it up there are far east asian um temples where there are old um ancient paintings of jesus and he looked like he looks like the far east asians um he looks like them However, the reason why the depiction of white Jesus and the rhetoric that goes behind it is so toxic and damaging was because for centuries it was used to oppress um, originally indigenous people in the Americas and then the African slaves. Furthermore, you know, if you believe that God is a white man, then that would make you as a black person or a slave or whatever to have some type of reverence for a white person because if that's what god is like then they're closer to god than me having darker skin and kinky hair and things like that so you know like i said europeans would be seen as godlike so there would have to be some submission so the thing is just the rhetoric of white jesus is an oppressive tool that still has a role today you know there are starting to be you know more accurate biblical um depictions whether it's like in the media or kids books and things like that and you know it's just it's just ridiculous in a way because you know you see how some conservatives talk about you know middle easterns and other brown people and it's horrendous it's inappropriate it's violent but it's like they're completely ignorant to the fact that jesus you know came and lived in the same lands so like it's just offensive in a way but it's also it just proves the ignorance like i said you know jesus was living on earth he was not your european savior with blonde hair and blue eyes and this makes a difference in dismantling this supremacist ideology whether you're a christian or not so for my um final topic um for this part one um episode <clears throat> um it's just kind of like about one of the worst things i feel is taught in a public system a public school system and it's this kind of narrative where you know you have martin dr martin luther king and he was like this good activist he did peaceful protests but then you have um malcolm x certain dr huey p newton and you know those were like the bad activists you know they were too radical and um threatening and you know after you i mean after you graduate and hopefully you know you try to start re-educating yourself 
it's still kind of rather difficult to understand the Black Panther Party, you know, whether you're reading online or in books without um, them being depicted as violent and radical. And personally, I just feel like, and this might seem biased, but one of the best books I've read about them is uh, The Revolutionary Suicide by Dr. Huey P. Inouye, one of the founders of the Black Panther Party. And it's an autobiography about his life, you know, from being born to Louisiana and growing up in the Oakland area. And it's an educational experience, and it's important because I feel like it's just so disrespectful that our society um, minimizes the Panthers as like a radical, violent um, social group or social movement. You know, um, Newton went to college and he had met other black students, but then realized that, you know, there needed to be a more concrete, accurate accurate way of learning about black history as it related to the time he was, um, the time of him being in college. And yes, you know, the Panthers did have guns, but you know, they were not for violence or just attacking people, but it was for self-defense. And to, you know, show black people that they have the same Second Amendment right that white people love to claim so freely. And I think, you know, there is that stigma about black people with guns since we're so heavily exposed to gang violence and tales of things like that. So as a re- as a result, um, our common image of a black man with a gun is one someone who has harmful intent. However, you know, your nearby neighborhood in the poor trailer park area with poor white people, you know, a white person can have a gun. And it doesn't incite so much of a threatening image. But you know, as I was saying, the Black Panther Party supported the community. They started the People's Free Food Program to feed breakfast to youths before school. And the program had spread across the United States. And I think the main cause of this fear of black of the Black Panthers were how, you know, there were these images released and they would show the um, members with guns. But they want to explain that, you know, they're patrolling the area. They want to make sure the people feel safe and have some accountability for um, being in the area and taking care of everything like that. You know, it was about challenging the cops and police brutality and, you know, the solidarity that they had if one of their members were arrested. And it's kind of obvious where this negative narrative came from, you know, it's the fear of, you know, some racial unrest and how it might end up throughout the country causing a giant race war but um i don't think black people want a war i mean i don't we just want to live in peace you know we want to express our rights as an actual american citizen so this good activist bad activist um story is repetitive and even you know present today you know people hated dr king you know the same way the when he was peacefully protesting just the same as they hated Malcolm X and Dr. Um, Huey P. Newton. And the narrative obviously changes decades later because, you know, now we see Dr. King as civil and relaxed, but it's, I mean, it's still ridiculously, it's just sad, you know. If you're peacefully kneeling during the national anthem or you're um, you're preaching about how the government's corrupt and such, they they still help they still hate you you know they don't want you to speak because but then 20 years later you know Kaepernick's going to be held up as this great hero of things as things get better I'll be optimistic and you know I feel like part of this kind of relates back to slavery you know if you were a slave you could be obedient you could be worshiping you know you could be always groveling at the feet of your master or you could be constantly getting whipped for trying to escape and killed at the end of the day but you know to these white people were just some restless niggers you know and just 
I feel like the Black Panthers should be held with the same regard and respect as Dr. King because they supported their community and changed the way Black people felt about protesting. So we're just about at um 30 minutes. That's actually not that bad. We're a little short under 30 minutes, but as I keep ranting, who knows if we'll get there. But um yes, this is the first part one of my little two-part episode called The Thing with the Mess Education of Black America. And I hope you enjoyed listening to it. The second part is probably going to be up um, right after this one. So please um, share, send your comments, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at thespiel.stewie. And until next time for part two, thank you for listening. Stewie out. (laughs) 